Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. Today, we are continuing our coverage of California's March 5th primary and the U.S. Senate race for the late Dianne Feinstein seat. Congressman Adam Schiff is joining us for the first 30 minutes of today's show. So if you have any questions for him, give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org. Congressman Schiff is nationally known for chairing the House Intelligence Committee during the impeachment hearing of Donald Trump and his work on the January 6th committee. He got into politics in 1996 as the youngest state senator at that time. In 2001, voters sent him to Congress. He now represents West Hollywood to Pasadena. The top two vote-getters on March 6th will be on the November ballot. This is such an important race. So, Congressman Schiff, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you. I want to first ask you about what's going on in California. It's the fifth largest economy in the world, but a thin slice of the population, as you know, holds much of the wealth. Bloomberg just came out with some new numbers. They found through July of last year, California's billionaires amassed $270 billion in wealth. And yet, as you know, we're dealing with a homeless crisis, drug crisis, widening inequality, the poverty rate increased after COVID benefits expired. Congress membership, given that you've been in the House since 2001, how do you explain how we got here? And what are your plans to tackle these issues if you go to the Senate? This is really the center point of my campaign, which is the need to make the economy work for people again. The problem today is not that people aren't working. Unemployment is very low. The problem is that they are working and many can't, uh, can't get by can't afford a home, can't afford their health care, can't afford groceries. Uh, it manifests itself most uh, significantly in, in thousands, tens of thousands in California, actually more than 100,000 who are literally homeless. Uh, and where this began, I think, is in the 1970s when we started to see for the first time as the country grew more prosperous and more productive, that prosperity and productivity wasn't being shared with many of the people that made it possible. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the marginalization of labor, uh, the degree to which uh, the corporate uh, power in this country um, conspired to uh, prevent people from forming unions, uh, from getting contracts, from enforcing them by gutting the National Labor Relations Board and its enforcement mechanism. We have about half as many households in labor today that, as we did in the 70s. And uh, and also the workplace has changed dramatically, and we have not kept pace with those changes. AI threatens to make it even worse. Uh, so these, these are really the core issues that I'm talking about up and down the state, about how we make uh, work pay uh, and allow people to pay the bills, uh, how we address this historic level of uh, income inequality, uh, not just in California, obviously, but nationwide, where fewer than 800 families in the whole country have as much accumulated wealth as half the households in the country. It's, 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 I think, immoral, and it's terrible policy, and it's got to change. 
And as you know, the minimum wage in the United States has not budged since 2009. And I think this speaks to the larger questions here, Congress Member Schiff. I mean, if you have a couple of Democrats, because of the way the system works, like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, for example, uh, they diluted the Build Back Better bill. I'm curious, we did so many shows about that original bill. Did you support that bill that... There's so many things in there that so many people want. You know, Medicare would have covered eyeglasses, hearing aids, dental. Uh, there would have been a conservation corps for the climate crisis. Did you support the original version of Build Back Better? Oh, absolutely. And, and I would have gone even further. Uh, but you're right. Uh, we had a couple Democrats who got in the way. Uh, we also have this terrible filibuster rule that prevents us from doing things even more meaningful. Uh, you know, my first order of business in the Senate is going to be a fight to do away with that rule uh, so that we can reestablish voting rights, which Republicans under Mitch McConnell have uh, seriously eroded. And if you don't have voting rights, which are foundational, the whole democratic edifice comes crumbling down, but also to restore reproductive freedom, to make the economy work for people, to uh, finally pass, you know, really powerful, meaningful common sense gun safety legislation like an assault weapons ban, like a, a ban on extended ammunition clips, like my legislation to strip away the immunity the NRA and the gun industry enjoy. All these things and so much more, we're not going to get done as long as there's a filibuster. Uh, and so uh, I would trade, you know, wild swings in policy that would accompany no filibuster in the Senate for the kind of uh, country-defeating gridlock we have today. How would you go about eliminating the filibuster, given the political makeup of today's Republican Party? Well, the issue you know, for Democrats is really not so much the makeup of the Republican Party uh, as the fact that, as you point out, we've had the Kirsten Cinemas and the Joe Manchins and the Democratic Party who weren't willing to do away with the filibuster, even to pass voting rights, even to restore reproductive freedom. Uh, and, you know, it's been my conviction all along that the day that Mitch McConnell decided he wanted to do away with the filibuster because it suited his interests, he would do away with it. Um, now, Mitch McConnell has announced that he's going to be stepping down at the end of the year, but uh, he's likely to be followed by someone with the, the same philosophy of, of killing any significant progressive movement for the country um, I want to see a reform of the Supreme Court. I'm uh, helping to lead the effort in the House to expand the size of the court, put term limits on the court, enforce the code of ethics on the court. And I know I'm not going to be able to get that done as long as there's a filibuster. What are Democrats doing wrong, given that a couple of Democrats can dilute legislation that the overwhelming majority of the population want, and Democrats are losing to very extreme Republicans? I mean, of course, gerrymandering plays a role there, but what are, what are your thoughts? What are Democrats doing wrong? I mean, we've never seen the kind of conservative Republicans. I don't even really know what to call some of them, to tell you the truth, like the Freedom Caucus types. Democrats are losing to these people. What explains that? Well, first of all, one of the things that Republicans demonstrated when they uh, controlled uh, the levers of power is you can move the country pretty far in a particular direction, in their case, the wrong direction, uh, if you have the courage of your convictions. Uh, and Democrats, uh, you know, not only need to be aggressive in promoting our progressive agenda, but we need to realize, too, that the, that the country, the population is on our side, unlike the Republicans whose agenda uh, is reactionary and backward and unpopular. 
Uh, it's all the more extraordinary uh, given how horribly that they're, they're running the House of Representatives where we're lurching from one potential crisis to another. We may avert a shutdown today, but we're just kicking the can down the road for another couple of weeks. Uh, but how is it possible that when their agenda is so unpopular and their governance is so flawed and have so many what I would call vile performance artists, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boeberts, the Matt Gates, how is it possible that it's even competitive between the two parties? Uh, you know, I think part of it uh, is, you know, we need to be very clear on our priorities. We need to be very clear on our, our, our uh, accomplishments. What we've done under President Biden has been really uh, the most phenomenal set of legislative uh, accomplishments uh, in a generation with the uh, infrastructure and the Chips and Science Act and the most significant attack on climate change in history. But we, we do a very poor job uh, of making our case and making it forcefully and making it in a disciplined way. Uh, and that has simply got to change. I also want to ask you about the Electoral College, because you went to Congress one year after George W. Bush became president because of the Electoral College. And here we are in 2024. And last time around, President Biden would have lost if it weren't for just 40,000 votes, even though he got 7 million more than Trump. So once again, where have the Democrats been on telling people more about the Electoral College? And and if you you support getting rid of it, right? So how many Democrats I, agree with you? I just I, I rarely hear Democrats talk about the Electoral College. Uh, you know, I think most Democrats agree with me. And yes, I absolutely favor doing away with the Electoral College. We've actually been doing something about it and gotten, you know, reasonably close. And by that, I mean, there is this multi-state compact uh, in which if you have states representing uh, 270 electoral votes, um, all agree that they will give all of their electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote, then you, you've essentially nullified or done away with the Electoral College. Uh, that is a much easier pathway to doing away with the Electoral College than having to amend the Constitution. And we've come within a couple states of getting there. Um, we had one state try to retrench and move backwards. But there are these structural problems in our democracy. Uh, we, and one of them is the one you point out, which is the Electoral College, in which we often have a minority of Americans get to pick the president. And that's just not right. Uh, you have another structural problem with the Senate, uh, in that the overweighting of the least populous states means a minority of Americans often control the Senate. And in the House, because of the gerrymander, you often have a minority of Americans controlling the majority in the House. Each of these has a solution. Uh, the easiest to fix is the gerrymander in the House. And Democrats should get it done. We needed to get it done. And in fact, the first two years of the Biden administration, I was making the case, not successfully, but nevertheless, that the first order of business should be uh, either doing away with or carving out the filibuster and passing voting rights and ending the gerrymander. If we had done that, we'd still be controlling the House. Uh, and we should also admit D.C., Washington, D.C., as a state and Puerto Rico, if they choose to be, to to begin to rebalance the Senate. Uh, and vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Electoral College, we should get rid of that with that multi-state compact. I would add one last thing, and that is the least representative body in the country is the Supreme Court. Uh, and the only way to fix that in the near term is by expanding the court and rebalancing it. 
uh, something I would have never uh, advocated in the past, but that I never would have imagined we'd have a Senate leader like Mitch McConnell uh, who would uh, pack the court along with Donald Trump by withholding an appointment from a Democratic president and jamming one down the country's throat uh, in the last days of the Trump administration. Today, we're speaking with U.S. Senate hopeful Congressman Adam Schiff. If you have a question for Congressman Schiff, you can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. A couple days ago, we spoke with Representative Barbara Lee. Yesterday, we had talked about Katie Porter's record. The top two vote-getters on March 6th will be on the November ballot. We're getting a lot of emails and calls about what's going on in Gaza. Before we talk about that, I do want to ask you about U.S. foreign policy in general and military spending, which we regularly cover. The United States spent almost $1 trillion on the military every year. And it gets little to no scrutiny. Benefits for veterans are a different line item. That's always important to note. Almost half of that money goes to weapons contractors. 60 Minutes had a great investigation last year about how companies like Lockheed and Raytheon overcharge taxpayers on just about everything they produce. Where do you stand on military spending and waste? And this is the one area where Democrats and Republicans, for the most part, agree. There's hardly any debate on this. Why is that? Well, it's just where I stand on it. I think we need to go over the defense budget with a fine-tooth comb, and we need to eliminate uh, expenditures that are unnecessary, that the Pentagon doesn't want, uh, that may be driven by district concerns. Uh, I remember, and, and by the way, my record on this goes a long way back to when I was a prosecutor uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles. I was in the government fraud and public corruption section and prosecuted defense contractors who, as you were alluding to, were bilking taxpayers, uh, padding their invoices or double billing them. Uh, so this has been a priority of mine ever since my days as a prosecutor. But I remember vividly being in a meeting with President uh, Obama, uh, along with several other Democratic members. And we were talking about the issue of the deficit and the debt, which even then was an issue and a, and a concern. Uh, and one of the members in the meeting used that opportunity, even though it was totally off topic, to urge the president to support the production of more F-22s that were made back in his district. And the president didn't hesitate to use this as a teaching moment and said, uh, you know, you want to attack the deficit and debt problem. Um, Well, I have to make national security decisions based on national security then. Uh, And he was absolutely right. Um, We need to make our national security decisions based on what is uh, necessary for national security. And uh, a lot of times what is necessary for national security uh, is not uh, a bloated budget uh, at the Pentagon, but rather investing more in foreign assistance, uh, in development assistance, uh, investing more in our diplomatic corps, which was hollowed out in the Trump administration. And and I'm glad to see being rebuilt uh, in the Biden administration but, uh, you know, when they, there's a greater expenditure on the, on the Army band than there is on a big chunk of uh, our diplomatic corps, you can tell uh, our priorities need to be realigned. Let's talk about your stance on what's going on in Israel and Gaza. The death toll in Gaza just surpassed 30,000. Congresswoman Barbara Lee was one of the first politicians to call for a ceasefire. Last Thursday, 13 of your Democratic colleagues in the House 
Jewish colleagues, including Representatives Dan Goldman and Jamie Raskin, sent a letter to President Biden calling for a temporary ceasefire, a return of the 102 hostages, and a surge in humanitarian aid for Palestinians. Are you aware of this letter? Why didn't you join it? And what is your stance today on what is going on in Israel and Gaza? Um, I honestly don't join most of the letters because I prefer to, to write my own or articulate my own views. But uh, I support what the administration is trying to do right now, which seems aligned with, with how you described the letter. And that is to achieve a pause in the fighting in which hostages are released, in which aid can get into Gaza and can help uh, civilians there um, so that we have you know meaningful progress to release of, of Americans, relief, the release of Israelis that have been uh, tragically uh, kept hostage by Hamas. Uh, so I support those efforts. Uh, I recently talked to our CIA director about them and what kind of progress we were making and, and my hope that it would reach fruition. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what has happened has been horribly tragic, both the terrible loss of Israeli lives uh, on October 7th, the, the deliberate barbarism and butchery, the murder, the rape, the torture uh, of Israelis, uh, but also the, the loss of so many Palestinian lives um, who have been you know, tragically used as human shields by Hamas. And I hope that this three-phase proposal of the administration uh, can move forward, uh, where there is a release of hostages uh, in exchange for a pause in the fighting, followed by a subsequent release and a subsequent release until all the hostages have been freed. Representative Schiff, what does a pause mean? I mean, given that Save the Children found that more than 10 Palestinian children per day are losing one or both of their legs. You've seen the videos. I mean, what's going on is is absolutely horrific. I mean, we're all watching this happen in real time. It is absolutely horrific, uh, and it's it's heartbreaking. Um, there's no other way to describe it uh, other than uh, just terribly tragic. Um, you know, I look. I, I think that no nation, uh, not the United States, not Israel, no nation would be able to suffer the kind of attack Israel did on October seventh and allow that terrorist organization that committed those acts to continue governing uh, the adjacent territory while threatening to attack. Uh, the country over and over and over again, just as it did on October 7th. Uh, so Hamas cannot be allowed to continue governing Gaza. Um, and and so there, we have to find a way that uh, Hamas um, uh, is, is no longer controlling Gaza. Uh, we're doing more to protect civilian lives. Uh, and, you know, that we get back somehow to a path to a two-state solution, which to my point of view is the only solution that makes uh, sense. Um, I'm hoping that maybe at the end of the day, what comes out of this terrible war is a global agreement in which Saudi Arabia recognizes Israel uh, and normalizes relationships with Israel. Israel recognizes a clear and, and viable path to a Palestinian state uh, and in which the, a reformed Palestinian authority uh, is governing both the West Bank and Gaza, uh, not Hamas. 
And as you know, Netanyahu is rejecting a two-state solution. In January, you did join 14 Jewish Democrats in criticizing the dismissal of a two-state solution. I just want to make sure that we get in some calls here because we've got about 10 more minutes with you. And I've already received about 15 emails just on Gaza. People are asking why you're not supporting a, a blanket ceasefire. So let's just hear from a few calls and then we'll get responses from Congressman Adam Schiff. Let's go to Kathleen in Glendale. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. Good morning. How are you guys? I, I'm born and raised in Glendale. So hi, neighbor. Hi, Adam. Hi. Hi, constituent. Hi. Um, I was born and raised in Glendale, and I am the daughter of Nicaraguan refugees. So um, my existence as an American, that identity, um, is a direct um, product of um, American intervention in my country. One of the poorest places on planet Earth, you know, ground zero, Nicaragua, Managua. Um, and I just came back from living there, um, from leaving my beautiful, the jewel city of Glendale, one of the richest areas, right, in Los Angeles. We got the Americana. We, we, we have it all, right? And um, a lot of that has to do with the, the Armenian, my Armenian neighbors whom I love so much, even with the speeding, even with the dirty looks. I love them. And... Um, Kathleen, can you get to your question? Because we only have 10 minutes left with the congressman and we've got full lines. The first genocide, documented genocide of the 20th century was the Armenian genocide, Adam. I don't have to school you on this. We're building a museum in Glendale. Never again means never again when it comes to genocide. Thank you for the call, Kathleen. And I really would like to get everyone in. I don't mean to be rude, but we just have 10 more minutes with the congressman. So if you can get to your question, we'll try to get as many people as possible. And then we'll get the congressman to respond after a few more calls. Let's hear from Marlene in Glendale. Hi, Marlene. Marlene, are you there? All right, let's go to Kathleen in San Francisco. Hi. Um, You know, I've been a long-time fan of the congressman, but he has gotten it so wrong here. This It couldn't be more wrong. The 75 years of the apartheid against the Palestinian people uh, has only been, you know, totally exacerbated uh, in the last less than a year. But the number of people that Netanyahu thinks it's okay to kill, the number of people that can knock on a Palestinian door and say, I'm going to live here now, you don't live here anymore, it's unconscionable. It's just unconscionable to claim that this Zionist behavior, if anybody is anti-Zionist behavior, they're anti-Semitic or they're in some way anti-Jewish religion or whatever it is. What is happening in Gaza is a travesty. And Thank you for the comments, Kathleen. Let's go to Lisa in Oakland. Hi, Lisa. Yeah, hi. Adam, I just want to say my mother was a German-Jewish refugee, and my mother did not survive the Holocaust so that we could become like the murderers that murdered our people. And for you not to speak out about what's going on and demand a ceasefire, a total ceasefire, and to to give unlimited arms to Israel and uh, with no conditions on it, really, shame on you. Really, that's all I can say. Shame on you. You, you. I don't know if you. You must be bought out by APEC, because I can't believe that someone who has good positions on other issues could be so morally bankrupt on this issue. 
Well, thank you for the call, Lisa. A representative shift. We've got now about 20 emails on what is happening in Gaza. So what are your responses to the callers? And a lot of people are, are, are writing it with similar sentiments. We're hearing from a lot of people whose parents uh, or grandparents survived the Holocaust, and they wonder why you're not taking a stronger stance on this. Well, first of all, to my constituent, Glendale, I, I appreciate your calling in. And, and as you know, um, I carried the genocide, Armenian genocide resolution in Congress for almost 20 years until we finally got that resolution passed uh, and uh, and President Biden uh, recognized the Armenian genocide. Uh, I don't uh, equate uh, the Turkish efforts to annihilate uh, the Armenian people with a war in Gaza. Uh, and uh, I, as I said, I think Israel has the right to defend itself uh, from the attack that that it had on October 7th. And I think any nation would have a similar right and duty to defend itself. At the same time, I think the United States needs to continue uh, urging and pressing Israel to reduce civilian casualties uh, because uh, there are, are lots of innocent Palestinians who are caught in the crosshairs, uh, caught between Israel and Hamas, which has borrowed beneath uh, hospitals and schools and embedded itself in the civilian population and uh, captured uh, hundreds of hostages for the explicit purpose of uh, essentially forcing Israel to make war in a densely populated urban area. Um, And look, I I realize the strong feelings people have about this. um, And what has been missing in a lot of this is the ability to have a, a civil dialogue about this. Uh, yes, uh, Representative Lee and I disagree on this. We had a forum on October 8th uh, in which uh, uh, Representative Lee was already calling for a permanent ceasefire. I don't understand how a country attacked the way Israel was can essentially unilaterally disarm and say we're not going to respond, not going to defend ourselves. Um, and uh, I, I uh, and so we do differ on that position. Uh, Representative Porter expressed her opposition to a ceasefire during our last debate. Uh, Now, uh, look, I can only articulate what I think the United States position should be. And I think as difficult as it has been, President Biden has been right uh, to defend Israel's rights to defend itself, but at the same time, uh, work hard to bring about pauses in the fighting to get more civilian aid into Gaza, to get more innocent people out of harm's way in Gaza, uh, we can both mourn the loss of Israeli lives and mourn the loss of Palestinian lives, and I do. We have a, a related question from Lynn, who wants to know where you stand on the settler movement. Uh, I believe in a two-state solution, uh, and any actions, uh, any settlement activity that essentially makes it more difficult to get to a two states is not something I support. Uh, the only thing that makes sense to me is having Palestinians and Israelis in two independent states side by side living in peace. Uh, and, and I think what, uh, what we need to do as a country is continue to try to use um, our policy to move the parties in the direction of a two-state solution because I think that is uh, ultimately what, what brings lasting peace to the region. Margaret wonders if you watched what happened with the South African case that was brought to the ICJ. I did. Uh, and look, I don't agree. Uh, and I, I will tell your listeners. So when I agree with the one I don't, I don't agree on calling this a genocide. 
Uh, and, um, and, and I think that um, in the case, for example, that I mentioned earlier of the Armenian people, there was an effort to annihilate a whole race of people. Um, and much as I join uh, your listeners in, in grieving the loss of so many Palestinian lives, uh, I do not believe that this is an effort to annihilate a people. I think this is an effort to annihilate a terrorist group uh, called Hamas. Uh, and, uh, and there are a terrible number of innocent people um, uh, who are suffering the consequences of this war. Before we let you go, Congressman Schiff, I wanted to ask you about campaign ads. This has come up in our last three shows with Congresswoman Barbara Lee and then yesterday talking about Katie Porter's record. According to the Wall Street Journal, your campaign has spent about $12 million, about half of its ad dollars so far, on commercials that criticize Republican Steve Garvey. Political strategists say it's a ploy to boost Garvey's profile among Republicans and ensure that he takes second, because then you would obviously win the race right then and there. A separate pro-shift committee has kicked in another almost $6 million for Garvey ads on Fox. According to the American Prospect, your campaign has also sent mailers to Republican households to boost Garvey. Garvey and Katie Porter are competing for second place, according to polls. So, Congressman, our listeners are so tired, as you know, of money in politics and ads, a lot of these ads, we have no idea where they come from. Why not just run against Katie Porter based on your records and your plans for the U.S. Senate rather than take part in these tactics? Well, first of all, most of our focus on the campaign is on my record of taking on the big fights, uh, like the fight against uh, Donald Trump and the fight to protect our democracy. I think Californians want a senator who has a record of not being on the sidelines, but it being in the middle of those existential struggles. Uh, but also we've been focused on my record of delivering for California, uh, my record of bringing back millions for housing for Californians, of my record of uh, trying to provide more uh, affordable and accessible childcare, of building mass transit, of my record of building an early earthquake warning system and passing legislation to protect press freedom and attack the nuclear proliferation so we are focusing on my positive record of delivering for Californians, and we are contrasting that with my two Democratic colleagues. Uh, but we're not ignoring Steve Garvey. This is an open primary. We are all competing for the same votes. Steve Garvey is on Fox uh, every week attacking me. Uh, he just produced an ad attacking me. Uh, he's not attacking the other candidates. They don't have to respond. But I will tell you this, you know, one of my colleagues, Katie Porter, is running ads about a different Republican in the race. Uh, you know, essentially attacking me for the same thing that she's doing. And I don't think voters respect uh, people who are you know, criticizing it when someone else does it and, and then doing it themselves. So, look, this is how a jungle primary works. It's not like there's a separate closed Republican primary and a separate closed Democratic primary. This is the nature of this uh, election. And we're distinguishing myself from Garvey on uh, a long list of policy matters where we disagree uh, and I would much rather, frankly, set up my ideological differences with Mr. Garvey than try to tear down my Democratic opponents. Congressmember Adam Schiff, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you. Congressmember Adam Schiff is nationally known for chairing the House Intelligence Committee during the impeachment hearing of Donald Trump and his work on the January 6th committee. 
The top two vote getters on March 6 will be on the November ballot. Uh, sorry we didn't get to all of your emails about a ceasefire in Gaza, but as you just heard there, Congress member Schiff is calling for a pause, not a ceasefire. Coming up after a break, we'll continue talking about Congress member Schiff's record. What are your thoughts based on what you've heard from Congress member Schiff? If you caught our show with Barbara Lee a few days ago, unfortunately, Katie Porter's team declined our request for a live interview, but we did talk about her record yesterday. So how are you making up your mind? What is most important to you? We'd love to hear from you. And what did you think of what you just heard from Congress membership? You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can email your call at kalw.org. After a break, we'll be joined by Benjamin Oreskes, who covers state and national politics for the Los Angeles Times. This is your call. We'll be back after this. This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up on our media roundtable, it has been two years since Russia's war on Ukraine. According to the UN, since February 2022, more than 10,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed. More than 6 million have fled the country. Another almost 4 million remain internally displaced. We'll also discuss coverage of the Alabama court's ruling that frozen embryos are children and those who destroy them can be held liable for wrongful death. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email your call at kalw.org. We'd also love to hear your overall thoughts about the Senate race between Representatives Barbara Lee, Katie Porter, and Adam Schiff. The Republican Steve Garvey is getting a major boost from Representative Schiff's ads. We just talked about that. So where do you stand? What issues are most important to you? This is a very important race. Whoever loses will no longer be in the House. Those are California rules. So we're going to lose one of uh, two of three of these candidates in the California House. You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. We're happy to welcome back Ben Oreskes, who covers state and national politics for the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Ben. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Well, great to have you. I just wonder, you tuned in there for the last five minutes. What did you think of how Congressman Schiff responded to my question about the ads that he's running, uh, criticizing slash boosting Republican Steve Garvey? You know, it it broadly uh, hues to what he has said before. Uh, I think that uh, Congressman Schiff has every right to spend his money how he sees fit. Uh, He has a strategy that him and his campaign team have put in place. And I think they're pretty unapologetic about it, considering that he uh, is in the top two, according to every poll that is out there right now. And, you know, again, this is not uh, an unprecedented maneuver in a California primary. We've seen it in gubernatorial races and down ballot races. It's a function of this jungle primary system. And, you know, he, his view is about results and he wants to win this race. And then, of course, his views on Gaza. I mean, we were flooded with emails, about 20, maybe 30 emails criticizing him for not calling for a ceasefire. We had a number of phone calls. Uh, he says he's calling for a, a, a pause in the fighting. What are your thoughts about how that might play out when it comes to how voters make up their minds? 
Sure. Well, I would start with with something that wasn't mentioned. You know, Adam Schiff is a Jewish American politician. Uh, I was with him the day after the uh, attack on October 7th. And on that day, he spoke with emotion and forcefulness about Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, that day, I would add, uh, Barbara Lee said that, um, you know, there should be an unconditional ceasefire and, a, a you know, a search for a diplomatic solution. I think his beliefs of, on this are driven very much by his own views and his exposure to the region. He's well-traveled in it. At the same time, I think there's a political dimension. Uh, you know, the response by Israel has been deeply unpopular among certain Americans. But, you know, we have pulled this issue uh, and we have found that, you know, people who have sort of backed President Biden's response are more likely to support Schiff. Older voters uh, are, are more likely to support uh, this response and they are also more likely to support Schiff. He, I think, had his views on this are coming from principle, but I also think in terms of how it might affect him, younger voters uh, who are the voters who have been most angered by what's happening uh, in the Middle East right now are not people who were supporting shift to begin with. So I think that this is not necessarily, while maybe an unpopular stand among many people in California, one that is having a political sort of blowback on him. Well, we're getting a lot of emails now about his response to the question about a ceasefire. Michelle writes, it's demoralizing to hear that he has this stance. I'm happy he shared it with me. I will never vote for an immoral person. He should be ashamed of himself. I mean, again, this is a a reason why it's so important to bring politicians on the show so they can interact with their constituents or people who are thinking about voting for them. Uh, Unfortunately, that is all too rare um, in these days. I also just wanted to ask you overall, Celine has an email that says, ask Californians to look up Schiff's voting record. So he's got a really long voting record. And we didn't have time for this, but I found a piece in the American Prospect. None of this is surprising because almost every Democrat voted for the Patriot Act and then the authorization of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. But he voted for both of those. He later voted for every pro-surveillance measure, such as the FISA Amendment of 2008, the USA Freedom Act of 2015. Uh, He also publicly endorsed the Saudi-led airstrikes in Yemen. What else do we need to know about Adam Schiff's record, given that he has been in Congress since 2001? Something that doesn't get a lot of attention. Well, Adam Schiff is the former chair of the House Intelligence Committee. He is someone who has, you know, broadly kept to the line of where Democrats have been on a lot of foreign policy issues. A a person who views that there should be a, a muscular American presence abroad. He is not someone opposed to interventions. You know, I, I know he supported the American intervention in, in, in Iraq uh, after ISIS sort of expanded its territory, uh, you know, about a decade ago or a little less than that. You know, he, he, he just, unlike Congress, uh, Congresswoman Lee, he has had a much more mainstream view of these issues. And obviously with hindsight, uh, her views have become much more popular. Um, you know, Adam Schiff is someone who has spoken eloquently about, uh, the need to protect Ukraine from uh, Russian incursions. He has similarly said that we need to come to the defense of Taiwan if it were invaded. On foreign policy, he really resembles uh, where the mainstream of the Democratic Party has been in recent years and, and where Joe Biden is right now. Well, let's hear from a few callers. Let's go to Kathleen in San Francisco. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. 
Hi, hi, Rose. Um, I just wanted to comment that um, there are so many people, as you point out, calling calling in and expressing their views that I admire Adam Schiff for his work on the January 6th committee and for much of what he's done in Congress. But when he says things like the Palestinian casualties can be attributed to they're being used as human shields by Hamas, come on. I mean, come on. You know, this is not uh, Israel defending itself, as they all like to say. This is truly a genocide, and more and more of the world is realizing this. And I'm I'm just appalled that people like Adam Schiff don't step up to the plate because it's it's just um, you know it's an absolute catastrophe to allow this to go on and to go along with Netanyahu and just supply the bombs to kill all these people. Kathleen, do you mind me asking? Is this going to affect how you vote? Um, it, it certainly is going to affect how I vote in the primary. I um, I can't call it idea of Trump winning, but I'm I'm not going to vote for him in the primary. And um, if we had this situation like they have in Washington and Colorado, and where you could actually opt out, I would do that. But we don't have that. But uh, it will affect how I vote in the primary. Well, thank you for calling, Kathleen. Let's go next to Lisa in San Francisco. Hi, Lisa. Yes, um, I think that Adam Schiff's com- uh, statement that he doesn't believe it's a genocide goes completely contrary to international law, from established international law regarding the Genocide Convention, which was very well explicated by the uh, by the South African case, and they showed they, they showed how it, it applied to all the different uh, cases of genocide. There was also. Uh, he says he doesn't believe that Israel has an intention to commit genocide. I find that not only that, but insulting, uh, because, in fact, uh, the South African case showed uh, undeniably that there had been uh, public statements uh, throughout the years, as well as now, um, by uh, people that followed Netanyahu and, and the entire, you know, uh, basically the entire Knesset, except for the, the Arab members, what they call Arab, they're really Palestinian, um, there has been continued um, impunity that the United States has allowed during these last 75 years at the U.N. nation, where Israel does not have a right to defend itself because it is an occupying power. Well, we Lisa, th- thank you for the comment. We've got a number of callers on the line again. I just want to get through a few, and then I want to talk with Ben about some of his recent pieces. Let's go to Glenn in Palo Alto. Hi, Glenn. I'm sorry, Greg. Hi, yeah, Greg. Hello, thank you. Um, first of all, I agree with your last caller. It is a genocide. But even if you don't want to use the term genocide, so over 30,000 people have been killed. What difference does it make what you call it? And not only that, the, the issue that... Uh, uh, about uh, Hamas uh, using human shields. Look, ten to 15,000 of these people killed have been children, okay? Are they Hamas fighters? I mean, it's just, it's immoral for him to take this position, and he knows it. I don't know why he's doing this, but he's wrong. I mean, uh, you know, and a majority of American people feel the same way. Lastly, one question that didn't get asked to him is, I would have liked to have known all of this... Uh, the uh, Palestine issue is probably most critical. I'd like to know what his stance is on the environment. What he wanted to do on the environment to try and get us out of this catastrophe and move towards a cleaner environment. Thanks. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Ben, can you answer that question? What is Adam Schiff's views on the environment? He came out with a, a climate plan recently. Yeah. So, you know, Adam Schiff, begins his career as a prosecutor in California, uh, in Los Angeles specifically, and, and does a lot of work on the environment, uh, prosecuting polluters. 
uh, you know, when he's been in Congress, he has uh, been very supportive of things like the Inflation Reduction Act and the various stimulus plans that have had a lot of money for the environment. And one of my colleagues, Sammy Roth, wrote a column about their the, the candidates' plans. And, and in his column, he said he wanted to hear more specificity from them. And he noted that they hadn't sort of made it a centerpiece of their candidacies. He, he said that Porter had done the most. Uh, but so I think there is more to be desired, if we can say that, from Schiff uh, on this issue. Is there anything else you can tell us? Because this is we, we cover this issue every Monday and regularly cover the climate crisis. And so I was looking at the Politico piece. They, they obtained Schiff's climate plan. And I'll just read from this. This came out on the 15th. Uh, Representative Adam Schiff proposes ending federal subsidies for oil and gas production, offering federal wildfire insurance and requiring insurance companies to disclose their fossil fuel investments as part of his campaign for the Senate seat. I have not read the Sammy Roth piece. Uh, Is there anything else you can tell us from that one? Um, You know, he has said he wants to see a Green New Deal passed. Again, you know, this is the, uh, the big sort of agenda piece for progressives in, in D.C. right now. Um, he he was a sponsor of bills that helped, you know, grow public transit in Southern California. You know, he he was a big proponent, along with Senator Dianne, late Senator Dianne Feinstein, uh, to, you know, expand the Santa Monica National Recreation Area in, in Southern California. So, you know, he does have a record. It's it's not an enormous one. This has not been the sort of center of his uh, campaign or, or, or of, um, you know, his career in Congress. We have another question from a caller. I'm sorry, from from someone who emailed in. Where does Representative Schiff stand on unions? Uh, uh, Representative Schiff is a very pro-union member of Congress. He's been endorsed, and and I'm going to flub exactly how many, but I think about like a dozen statewide unions, Carpenters, uh, you know, IATSE. He was on the picket lines during the WEGA strike. Uh, He's been a big proponent of of the FAIR uh, Act in Congress, you know, trying to help unions, uh, you know, gain bargaining rights that they've lost in certain respects. He's also, you know, a big has been a proponent of trying to, you know, refill the NLRB board, which has been a sort of something that's been uh, depleted during the Trump years, and they've struggled to refill some of the positions. Uh, so it, he's someone who's very pro-union. He's uh, had a lot of union support in his campaign, uh, and, and it's been part of the coalition that's kind of seen him rise in popularity. Today, we're speaking with Benjamin Oreskes, who covers politics for the Los Angeles Times, and he's written a number of articles about the California Senate race. He's got a new one out, which we'll talk about before we end the show, meet some of the biggest donors shaping California's U.S. Senate race. Before we do that, let's hear from another caller, David, in San Francisco. Hi, David. Oh, thanks, Rose. Um, Yeah, I was in in a bigger theme uh, King Leopold, many years ago, a hundred years ago, was trying to buck the social contract, uh, the social contract that whipped uh, kings and forced them to look out for the constituents. And the King Leopold created the Belgian Congo, where the 15 million people in there were his personal property. And they weren't citizens. They weren't even uh, slaves. They were his personal property. And uh, and so the corporation that he created... David, uh, I'm so, I don't mean to be rude, but can you get to your question? Because we're almost out of time. 
uh, well, the social contract is what's the problem here. Uh, whether it's Putin, whether it's uh, China, uh, whether it's uh, the corporate state here in the United States, they don't want to have to look out for every citizen. They don't want to even call us citizens. They want us to be subjects. And so where does uh, where do the politicians today go on this subject? And where does uh, when Schiff is trying to work on on prosecuting Trump, uh, Trump is trying to make sure that the American citizens, as well as the citizens of the world, are subjects instead of citizens. Well, he says he wants to end the Electoral College, eliminate the filibuster, expand the Supreme Court. Ben, anything to add? I think that issue, particularly about Supreme Court expansion, is really interesting. Uh, it's one, it's a, it's a position, shifts position that all of the Democratic candidates in this primary agree on. And, and it's just a reflection of how angry people are about how the court has sort of weighed in on many hot button issues and how uh, the court was filled. Uh, he mentioned the uh, seat uh, that Merrick Garland was appointed to that Mitch McConnell refused to fill. Uh, and and I, I, he even mentioned in his sort of response to you, Rose, how he wouldn't necessarily have taken that position a decade ago, but he was so angered by this. And it just speaks to how quickly the mainstream view on this among progressives and, and Democrats more broadly has shifted in a way that, I mean, honestly surprises me. Hmm. Well, l- let's spend the rest of our time talking about your two latest pieces. One, California's streak of female senators may be ending and women appear to be a reason. Uh, you write that this could be the first time in three decades that California is not represented by at least one female senator. And part of the reason is that we've seen female voters flock behind Adam Schiff. So tell us more about what you found. Sure. Um, let's talk about Katie Porter for a second. You know, Katie Porter is elected in 2018. She's a first time candidate. She's an Irvine professor who's angry about Donald Trump and the policies that he had been enacting. And, and she rides this wave of discontent, uh, to win a frontline seat that was previously held by a Republican. And, and she does that on the back of suburban women. And, and that is something that has kept her in office in competitive races over the last six years. And was something that we thought would help propel her, you know, to a better position in this primary. What we're seeing in the polling is that she isn't winning in big margins by with women. Uh, and that same coalition that helped propel her to victory in all those races is not uh, staying together. And, and part of the reason is, is because Schiff is winning among uh, female voters. He's winning among them for a variety of reasons. And, and I, and I looked at this question and saw that uh, female voters, you know, we're very impressed with Schiff on a number of fronts. One, his stand against Trump on the January 6th committee, on impeachment, on the House Intelligence Committee. There was that. No, no one's uh, – Schiff's views on Roe v. Wade and reproductive rights, they're not in doubt. No one questions that Schiff is going to, you know, vote for a Supreme Court uh, appointee who, who doesn't want to protect or expand those rights. And, and finally, he has the endorsement of, of a litany of powerful and prominent female politicians, including Nancy Pelosi uh, and, and former Senator Barbara Boxer. So I think all of that taken together ha- has uh, created sort of a – an ability for female voters to say, I'm comfortable with this candidate, even though he's not a woman. 
It was also interesting to read in your piece that when Representative Katie Porter first ran for Congress in 2018, some of the nation's most influential female leaders and advocacy organizations lined up to support her, including then-Senator Kamala Harris, Emily's List, and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. In Porter's 2024 bid to become California's newest senator, many of those same voices are silent. Did you reach out to groups like Planned Parenthood or Emily's List to find out why? Yeah, their silence on this issue is notable. I, if I had had more information, I would have put it in the story. And, and I think, uh, I think that again, that's a reflection of what I was saying before that, you know, Schiff is a prominent, prominent member of, uh, the Democratic you know, majority, or, you know, caucus in the house. He's someone who has raised a lot of money for candidates and for causes that you just mentioned. And, and I think for a lot of these groups, getting involved in a messy democratic primary, uh, knowing that on the other side, whoever is appointed or sorry, elected, uh, will support the positions that they like. Maybe like the juice is not worth the squeeze. It's not worth potentially crossing the for the, the, the future senator. And I think you, you can't forget that when you're thinking about this issue. Huh, because, right, I mean, Adam Schiff could be in there for 25, who knows how long, a couple decades for sure, if he wins. That's the other thing that's important to note here is some people are saying, why did Katie Porter run for Senate this time around, knowing that if she lost, she's no longer going to be in the House because of California rules? But the fact is, these seats don't come open very often. Absolutely. Uh, let's take Diane Feinstein. Barbara Boxer, they were elected in 1992. They served for, you know, between 20 and 30 years, respectively. Uh, these are, there's two of them. The other one is held by a 50 something year old and Alex Padilla, uh, you know, barring no health scares or scandals that they're going to be in these seats for a long time. And, and remember, that's not just, you know, holding it for the sake of holding it. That's building up institutional knowledge. It's also building up seniority to get you know, prime appointments in Senate committees, you want to be there for a long time. So, you know, I think Katie Porter looked at this and said, this is my opportunity. I'm going to jump at it. I'm not going to wait around or wait in line. And for, and for Schiff, he is someone who has eyed different statewide offices. He, you know, had wanted to at one point become attorney general of the state. Um, and he had been a, a loyal foot soldier for democratic lead, leadership in the house. And, for him, he felt like it was his turn. And again, I think a primary is a healthy thing. And you're right. A lot of voters have lamented losing prominent Democrats like Porter, like Schiff, like Barbara Lee. But, you know, ultimately, uh, a race is about winning and, 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 you know, you have to jump in, you have to be in the arena and you have to take that risk. Let's spend the next two minutes talking about the other piece you wrote, Meet Some of the Biggest Donors Shaping California's U.S. Senate Race. A handful of super PACs have spent more than $18 million on California's Senate race and at least 71 and, and have at least $71 million more at their disposal. We briefly talked about those crypto ads that are airing against Katie Porter yesterday. It's a super PAC called Fair Shake. You wrote about this. Can you tell us more about what you found? Yeah, so this is a a super PAC that is funded by a, a group of Silicon Valley billionaires and, and people who have invested in cryptocurrency specifically, uh, names like Mark Andresium, Ben Horowitz, uh, the Winklevoss twins, and, and the person who started Coinbase. You know, their view is that they want to see candidates who are and, and elected officials who are more sympathetic to uh, issues that are important to them. And, and in Katie Porter, they have someone who is quite skeptical of, of crypto 
And more importantly, as someone who believes in a very muscular oversight of financial institutions, her and her mentor, Elizabeth Warren, have both, uh, you know, taken this view. And, and I think in shift, they see someone who's not necessarily going to be pliable to them, but uh, at least someone who they can, you know, get a better hearing with. So yes, they have plowed about $10 million into this race. They've run attack ads against Katie Porter. These ads, uh, you know, have accused her of taking what they, what, uh, you know, money from big pharma, big oil and big, uh, big bank executives, you know, uh, newspapers ha- have called these ads false, uh, and she has called the group dark and shady, uh, and, and, and criticized them. Again, this is all kind of part of the, you know, the brawl that is California politics, but, but it definitely shows that a lot of very well invested interests have lined up against Porter for a host of specific reasons. Hmm. Uh, this is interesting to learn. I have not seen this anywhere else that Native American tribes are supporting Adam Schiff. You report at $200,000, tribes that operate casinos in the Bay Area and Palm Springs are supporting him. Yeah, these are groups that have been very active in California politics. Um, they uh, last election cycle sponsored a, a proposition that didn't pass that would have legalized sports betting on the tribal lands. You know, th- th- their representatives didn't respond to us, so we weren't quite clear uh, why Schiff was their guy. But again, they have a very vested interest in California politics and, and legislation. You know, as we've seen gambling get legalized at the state level and more and more like across the country. Uh, I, I think we, that stands to reason that they want to have a, in with the, the person who's representing the state in the Senate. Did anything else stand out for you during your research? You know, again, I think that we, we talked about union support. We saw the unions sort of put their money where their mouth is in this. They've donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to support Schiff. And, and again, it just lines, uh, you know, adds to this way that the deck is stacked against Katie Porter. She's running in a primary where the turnout is very low. The voters are going to be much older. Uh, more Republicans are voting in this than a normal general election. And, and it just contributes to this idea that Adam Schiff has a lot in his favor as we head towards Tuesday. And Katie Porter could still make, uh, you know, the general election, uh, but it's a very challenging sort of landscape for her. And Adam Schiff has run a very smart race, one with a very clear strategy. And so it's been just very interesting to watch and one that is, you know, very exciting. Uh, Voters have a choice, a real stark one between these Democratic candidates and one Republican. Well, there's actually 27 people running, but they have real choices. and, And that's great for voters in this state. Benjamin Oreskes covers state and national politics for the Los Angeles Times. You can find the pieces that we talked about at yourcallradio.org. Ben, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, spread the word. Uh, We are expecting turnout to be low. We hope that's not the case, but let your friends, colleagues, family know about the race on March 6th. You can also share links. Uh, Today, we spoke with Congressman Adam Schiff. A few days ago, we spoke with Congressmember Barbara Lee. Katie Porter's team declined our invitation, but we did talk about her record yesterday. You can find it all at yourcallradio.org. Thanks to Savannah Harriman-Pote for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar at Your Call.